Let's continue in a posture of prayer. Lord, you are ever good to us, ever showing your faithfulness toward us. Lord, we can uh, look back on dark, cloudy, stormy times of our lives and see your faithful hand leading us through it and showing us things and growing us, forming things in us, uh, shaping us, taking things out of us. Lord, you're always at work for our good. We praise you because you are our father. We are your sons and daughters. You are a good father. You have given us all things. You've given us your son, Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross that we might be forgiven of our sins and restored to a reconciled relationship with you. Lord, you are so good. And I pray, Lord, as we now open your precious word that is a lamp and a light and that is our life, Lord, that you would not only speak but continue to mold and shape us and contour us for your glory, for our benefit, for the good of our neighbor, for the good of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I was 19 years old, uh, just in my started, just freshly started my second year of college when the Berlin Wall came down on the 9th of November, 1989. Certainly, I think that event ranks high on the list as one of the most significant events to happen in my lifetime, and if you were alive in 1989, uh, in your lifetime as well. And of course, when that wall that divided East and West Germany came down, it signaled the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was huge, it was massive. Many of us might not be aware though of what happened in Leipzig, East Germany, exactly one month prior to that event. Uh, this happened on the 9th of October, exactly one month prior to the fall of the Ber Berlin Wall. The Church of St. Nikolai, in Leipzig had for years opened its doors to any and all who wanted to attend Monday peace prayer meetings. Again, keep in mind, those Monday prayer meetings were happening in what was then an atheist state ruled by the communist party. So there was certainly a risk involved in hosting those Monday prayer meetings. Well, attendance grew at the meetings, and in May of 1989, the communist authorities began to notice, and they began to get nervous about the sheer numbers of people that were showing up at these meetings, and so they made an attempt to block and barricade the streets that led to the church, they also arrested several people, leaders, in a systematic way on more than one occasion. But all of their efforts backfired and only made the attendance grow even more. By October of 1989, as the attendance at these 
prayer meetings was really peaking, the communist authorities decided that they would publish a threat in the local paper declaring that this peaceful protest prayer movement would be put down by any means necessary and that this would happen on Monday, October 9th. And so the authorities lined the streets with soldiers and with police. Uh, There was a palpable fear and tension in the air. They also arranged about a thousand communist party members to go early to the prayer meeting so that they could occupy as many seats as possible to prevent praying people from finding a seat. But as it turned out, about 6,000 people managed to cram themselves into that church. And by the time the prayer meeting ended, there were about 70,000 anti-communist people who were gathered in the square outside. And they all went on a march around the city, boldly marching past the communist state police office, peacefully, peacefully protesting as they did. Many were holding candles in both hands to show that they were unarmed. And these events of the 9th of October, 1989, marked a real turning point. The Communist Party soon ended up losing all public support. The government collapsed. And only one month later, the Berlin Wall came down. There was an official in the Communist Central Committee who would later write this as he reflected back on the events of October 9th. He said, we had planned for everything, we were prepared for everything, but not for candles and prayers. God moved powerfully and mightily in East Germany in October and November of 1989 as believers boldly approached his throne, even in those very tense circumstances, and prayed in faith. Well, friends, with that story in our minds, fresh in our minds, I want us to go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. If you have a Bible on a device or a paper Bible in front of you or another form, please open it to Luke, chapter 11. This chapter begins with Jesus praying. And one of his disciples says to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the only time in the gospels when a disciple asked the Lord specifically to teach something. Lord, teach us to pray. And then, Instead of launching into a lecture on the mechanics of prayer, Jesus then offers a model of how to pray as he then prays what we know, of course, as the Lord's Prayer. What we notice, among many other things, in the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, 2 through 4, what we notice is that it is full of imperatives. It is full, in other words, of command words. Lord, 
hallowed be your name. Father, your kingdom come. Father, give us each day our daily bread. Father, forgive us our sins. There is a sense in the Lord's prayer that it is the Father's to give, it is the Father's to dole out, to do, and that you and I are in poverty. Amen? We are needy. We come with bold pleading before the Lord. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us. Your kingdom come. Well, right on the heels of the Lord's Prayer comes a little four-verse parable. That is our focus this morning. And the parable begins at Luke eleven five, and the context is still, Lord, teach us to pray. Still the context. I want us to hear the entire parable first, and then we'll come back and make some observations. So beginning at verse five, and he, Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. May the Lord add blessing to the reading, to the hearing, and the doing of his word. Now, in the bulk of this parable, we need to understand, Jesus is setting up a hypothetical situation for our consideration. A hypothetical situation. Notice that the English Standard Version of Scripture which is the version we normally use for preaching here at this church. The English Standard Version has the words, which of you, in verse five. But there is an advantage here to translating the Greek the way the New American Standard Bible does, as well as the New International Version with the word suppose. Suppose one of you has a friend or in the Common English Bible, imagine, imagine that one of you has a friend. Jesus wants us to imagine, to suppose a certain scenario, a certain hypothetical situation. Suppose you have a friend, and you go to this friend's at midnight, and you know already, even as you're walking over there, you know already, it's 12 a.m., you know that the occupants of the house have gone to bed and their lamps are put out, but you go anyway. And from your side of the door, standing there on the porch in the middle of the night, you call out, hey friend, lend me three loaves, would you? 
There's another friend of mine that's just arrived. My cupboards are bare. I've got nothing to set before him. And of course, we need to recognize here that this guy on the porch didn't have the option of going to the Depp or to Kushtard to get bread. Nothing like that existed in his day. No convenience stores open at midnight. So he goes to his friend at midnight, calls to him, notice, calls to him. There's nothing about knocking here. Calls to him through the door. Now, I remember one time when we lived in Calgary, uh, we lived in the Parsonage House. It was right next to the church building. Uh, We were woken up from a blissful sleep. I remember I was in deep sleep at about 2.30 a.m., with loud knocks on our front door, men calling out, and flashlights shining into our front room. It was two police officers. And they had come to our our parsonage home at 2.30 in the morning because a 911 call had come from the church building. And so I had to put on my flip-flops, 2.30 in the morning, Uh, in my pajamas, walk over with them a few steps in the middle of the night to the church, unlock the door so that they could get in there and check things out and make sure the building was secure. Well, the end of the story is it turned out that the call that they had received was some sort of weird ghost call uh, that had somehow been generated from inside the church. Apparently that sometimes happens. Who knows how? But the point is, waking up suddenly... (laughs) To that la- it was a wooden door, that loud banging on the door, uh, flashlights, men's voices. It, it was not a fun experience. And it wouldn't be fun for the guy in the parable who gets woken up at midnight with the sound of his buddy for three loaves of bread. And it would be especially problematic because typical houses of the day were one-room houses. Okay, so you have the guy sleeping there, everybody else is sleeping there in the same room with him. Sometimes they even had animals in the house in the same room. So everybody would be woken up at the sound of the guy who's calling outside. You can just imagine the guy sleeping, uh, getting up and saying, some nerve to come and make all this racket and wake our family up. Things had just gotten nicely quiet, and now this. But then notice Jesus continues here to detail the hypothetical situation. He wonders, he wonders, is the guy who's just been woken up out of a dead sleep, is is he gonna say to his friend outside, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Is he gonna say that? Of course, he would not say such things. Of course, in this particular ancient culture, the sleeping man would never dream of making such terrible excuses to stay in bed. There was too much at stake for this guy if he withheld the loaves of bread. Well, what was at stake? Listen. If a guest showed up at someone's house in this culture, it was a community responsibility, a community responsibility to make sure that hospitality 
was afforded to the guest. If I was a person hosting a guest and I suddenly realized that I didn't have any bread in the house to offer to my guest, I would simply go to a neighbor and I would ask for bread because I knew that the neighbor was under the same social obligation that I was under to provide hospitality to a guest, whether that guest is in my neighbor's house or whether that guest is in my own house. And if I was the one being approached for bread, I could not refuse to give it out if I had it. If I refused to give bread out when I had had it to give, it would be a very dishonorable thing for me and news of my stinginess would quickly travel around the entire village, bringing shame on me. So of course the sleeping man inside the house is not going to refuse to give bread with weak excuses, like a shut door. How hard is it to just open the lock? A shut door, his children lying in bed. Now notice verse 8. Jesus says in verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, There are a couple of issues in this final verse of the parable to try and sort out. First of all, the question is, who do all the pronouns in this verse refer to? Exactly. Notice that we have an abundance in this verse of words like he, him, his. I count eight occurrences of these pronouns in in this single verse. So let's make an initial attempt, follow with me, let's make an initial attempt to sort out who's who here. And I want to ask you to focus with me here. Uh, This requires a little bit of careful thinking. So I think the first four pronouns, the occurrences here, are relatively easy to sort out. Jesus says, let's go through this, I tell you, though he, the man sleeping, will not get up and give him, the man outside who's asking for bread, anything because he, the man sleeping, is his, (laughs) the man outside asking's friend. So far, so good? Now comes the hard part. Yet because of, whoops, Yet because of his impudence. Whose impudence? We'll come back to that. He, the man sleeping, will rise and give him, the man asking, whatever he, the man asking, needs. So, fellow biblical scholars, we have identified seven out of the eight pronouns, but the ongoing debate amongst biblical commentators has to do with the fifth pronoun with that phrase, his impudence. Whose impudence? The man asking at the door, his impudence? Or is this referring to the impudence 
of the man inside sleeping. And the first very necessary thing to do here, as we consider this and sort this out, is to look at the original Greek word. I'm asking you to put on your, your uh, early Sunday morning thinking uh, caps with me here, um, to look at the original Greek word that the ESV has translated into English as impudence, okay? Remember that the New Testament is written in Greek, and any English translation that you have, the translation committee has made choices for you. Educated choices, but choices nonetheless. So many of you, um, especially if you're a little older this morning, might be familiar with the way that the King James Version translated the Greek here with the word importunity. Uh, That's now a relatively unused word in our English language. There have been several other translation choices here. For example, the New American Standard Bible went with the word persistence. The 1984 New International Version went with the word boldness. The Common English Bible went with the word brashness. Uh, The 2011 New International Version decided on that phrase, shameless audacity. The New English Bible went with shamelessness. So lots of variety in translating this Greek word. Part of our problem here, and this is important for the text, this word, because it's meaningful. Part of our problem here in translating this Greek word accurately into English is that as far as the New Testament is concerned, the word is only found in this single verse. It's only found in this single verse. We have no other New Testament uses of the word to compare it with to see if other usages of the word can shine light on the meaning here. It's only found here in the New Testament. However, The Greek word in question is used in Greek literature outside of the New Testament over 250 times. And in the vast majority, and I do mean vast majority of cases, the word has a negative overtone. It has a negative overtone. In fact, the best translation of this word and I've got those crossed out there, is not with our word persistence, not with our word importunity. Because we notice, don't we, in this little parable that the man at the door asks for bread only once, right? So the word persist or persistence doesn't seem to fit here within the parable. It turns out that the best translation, all things considered, is shamelessness with a negative overtone. In other words, the word is describing a sort of reckless brazenness or brazen recklessness, shamelessness. Now, there have been scholars who have argued that the shamelessness in verse eight is referring to the man sleeping. So the idea in this interpretation is that the man sleeping had been shameless or he had been without shame before his friend showed up asking for bread at the door and he wants to keep it that way to preserve his honor and so he will give bread out. So the idea then would be because of the sleeping man's honor, because he was shameless without shame, wanted to keep it that way, he would rise and give the man at the door whatever he needed. 
You with me so far? But again, the overwhelming evidence points to the fact that this word carries a negative sense. Klein Snodgrass says that the word, quote, expresses an ignorance about or disregard of what is shameful. A, an ignorance about or a disregard of what is shameful and the absence of any sense of proper behavior. He argues further that the word in Luke 11:8 refers, listen, it refers to the insensitivity, the rudeness, of the man at the door who comes asking in the middle of the night. And Snodgrass points further to the translation of verse eight that's given in the New English Bible, which reads this way, I tell you that even if he will not provide for him out of friendship, the very shamelessness of this request, I've got the wrong one up there, the very shamelessness of this request will make him get up and give him all he needs. There it is there. I tell you that even if you will not provide for him a friendship, the very shamelessness of the request will make him get up and give him all he needs. Well, I agree with Snodgrass's conclusion on this. I didn't always. And I agree with the conclusion of the New English Bible. The shamelessness or the impudence in verse eight is referring to the man on the porch calling out for bread at midnight when everybody's asleep. Now the guy inside the house is not going to make weak excuses in such a scenario. He's gonna get up out of bed and he, even though the guy outside is brazen, shameless, rude, showing up like this, waking everybody up, including the kids at midnight, nevertheless, the sleeping man is going to give him whatever he needs to help the guest out, to preserve his own honor, and to get the guy off his porch so he can go back to bed. Now, after all of that, that's the parable. If you're still with me, <laughs> the larger question is then this. Oh man, this is, uh, boy, there, what's the parable about? <laughs> the larger question is, what's it about? What is Jesus saying here in this Parable, what's he trying to bring across to us here? I want you to listen very carefully, okay? Listen very carefully. One thing that Jesus is most certainly not doing, not doing, is equating God the Father with the guy who's sleeping in his house. We have to be careful not to think that the guy sleeping inside the house stands for God. He doesn't. God is not to be equated with the guy who is bothered at midnight and relents and gives out bread, but not because of friendship, Jesus says. If we equate the man sleeping in the house with God, we will end up with a very unsatisfactory picture of God. And likewise, we are not to conclude from the parable that rudeness, brazenness, is the way that we should approach God to ask for things. With parables, we always need to be very careful that we don't draw hasty one-to-one -one connections 
between us and a character or between a character and God. Sometimes those connections might work, but other times we're on very shaky ground. So then, what's going on here? What is Jesus doing in this parable? Well, friends, Jesus is a rabbi in the first century, right? And Jesus is using a rabbinic teaching technique called Kal Vachomer. Say that with me. Kal Vachomer. Very good. The basic meaning of Kal Vachomer is light and heavy. The light case, the lesser case that Jesus presents here is the very scenario in the parable. Two human beings, faulty human beings, two human beings on either side of a door negotiating loaves of bread at midnight, and the one guy will end up responding favorably to the request for bread, even though he might have made excuses, which Jesus gives. He might have made these excuses. He didn't, but he might have. And even though the guy coming to the door is rather brazen, right? Coming to the door at midnight as he did. The sleeping man responds not out of friendship, but because of the other guy's impudence. That's the light side of Kal Vakomer in this case. The lesser side, what's the heavy side? The heavy side, the greater case, the case that contrasts with the scenario in the parable is God the Father giving to his friends. God is not the guy sleeping in the house. God is to be contrasted very sharply with that guy The potential excuses that were available to that guy would never apply to God, would they? God does not give to us because of our rudeness. Indeed, God is to be contrasted with the guy sleeping in the house, and indeed, God is to be contrasted with every single human being. God gives differently than human beings do. As Jesus will say down in verse 13, how much more will the heavenly Father give than we, who are evil, give good gifts to our children? How much more, my friends, And that phrase, how much more, is a tip-off that we have a case of call vac homer. How much more applies to the heavy side of call vac homer, and this phrase appears more than once on the lips of Jesus and on the lips of Paul in the Gospels and in Paul's writing. How much more? As Snodgrass comments on its use here in such close proximity to the parable, Snodgrass says, listen to this, if a human will respond to the request of a rude friend for bread, how much more will God provide bread in response to the requests of his people? 
The truth, my friends, is this, that God delights to give to his children. Did you know that? God delights to give to his children at midnight, at 6 a.m., at 10.30 p.m., whenever. God is eager to extend his great generosity. When we ask, says Jesus in the verse right after the parable, it will be given to us. Right? Ask, given. When we seek, we will find. When we knock, it will be opened to us. As Daryl Bach puts this so nicely, he says, we are to come to the Father knowing that his arms are open for us. That's our God. We are to come to the Father knowing his arms are open for us. Our parable is pointing us to freedom from anxiety. It's what it's doing, freedom from anxiety. It's interesting that only one chapter after this parable, Jesus is gonna say this. Do not be what about your life? Do not be anxious. Are you anxious about your life? I get anxious all the time. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat? Ah, I'm looking at my bank account now. Can I even afford to buy milk? Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And then he talks about how God feeds the ravens those black birds flying around squawking. God feeds the ravens and how you and I are of more value than the birds and how God clothes the grass. Will he not also clothe us? God eagerly gives. God abundantly gives. God delights to give. God loves his children. And I know that right now, some of you are thinking, hmm, okay. But I've been asking for a long time for things. I guess the question for us in our woundedness, with all the accumulated life barnacles and baggage that we have and seeing through a glass darkly as we do, is to ask ourselves whether we really believe what the Bible tells us about God. As James Houston once put it, against the evidence of our own wounded lives, we have to disbelieve the mean picture we may, may have of God's character. I want to read that again. Against the evidence of our own wounded lives, we have to disbelieve the mean picture we may have of God's character. And then he says this, Jesus spoke in extravagant terms, didn't he? Yeah, he, he spoke in extravagant terms to show us how our lives and how our prayers could be transformed when we believe in the generosity of God's giving. There ought to be some amens. When we believe in the generosity of God's giving. My friends, God had enough kindness and generosity and power to bring down the Berlin Wall and change the world forever when his people 
in communist-controlled Leipzig prayed in faith. How much more is God willing to give us when we pray in faith to him, when we petition him in humility, in our poverty, instead of demanding from him? How much more will God give us when we pray that his crucified and resurrected and soon coming son be glorified in all things, including our pain? How much more will God do when we pray God-centered prayers for ourselves and for our neighbors instead of purely self-centered prayers? How much more will he do when in our prayers we include petitions for enhanced faithfulness within the people of God, unity within the people of God, discipleship to blossom and flourish within the church? How much more, amen? Let's pray. Father, you are the God who did not spare your own son, but gave him, gave him, gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Whether food, Water, protection, strength, consolation, peace, clothing, spiritual fortification, endurance, whatever mercies from your vast inexhaustible storehouse that you deem to be good for us. Father, I pray for your people that they would understand this week that they have essentially a blank check in their back pocket. That we can go to you and pray to you and humbly seek and ask and knock and you will give and you will open doors and we will find, Lord, against the evidence of our wounded lives, may we believe that you are who you say you are and that you will give, Lord, as you describe. I pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.